Good morning, church. Hello, everybody. Good to see you. If you're a guest, and I've met a couple this morning, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Glad you're here. Our hope is you have a deep sense of belonging as you're with us in worship. If you're a guest, stop by the welcome booth out in the welcome center, just beyond the foyer. There's a little booth there, a book on the booth. Please help yourself to that. It'll help you get to know us as a church. Uh, it describes our aim as a church in our effort to make disciples. This morning, we continue in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. Before I read the passage, though, I want to wade into the water by uh, asking us to wrestle with a couple questions. These are the questions. As followers of Christ, how do we make the best possible decisions? How do we make the best possible decisions? And perhaps of equal importance, a second question, how do we respond to others who disagree with our decisions? So how do we make the best possible decision? How do we disagree with others who disagree? How do we, how do we respond to others who disagree with the decisions we've made? Historically, when making decisions, I've grouped all possible uh, decisions into one of four categories. Those categories are on the screen. Wise, permissible, unwise, and sinful. Wise are those decisions that um, are expressly identified in Scripture and reflect God's character and purposes for me, for us, collectively. Permissible are those decisions that express individual preferences, like wearing ankle-high black boots, right? Or uh, a blue shirt rather than, you know, something else. Individual preferences. And then between uh, what is permissible and what is unwise is needed restraint, discipline, and discernment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Therein lies the need for restraint, discipline, discernment. Everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Then he says, and I'll not be mastered by anything. So the unwise is to indulge individual preferences. So one example, it might be, it's, it's my preference to wear ankle-high black boots. It would be unwise to own 30 pair of them. It'd be indulgent with regard to my preference for ankle-high black boots. Sinful is, are those decisions contrary, expressly contrary to God's character and purposes. Obviously, we want, to, we want to make decisions that are at the wise end of the rubric and stay away from the sinful category. Uh, we want to stay away, frankly, from what is unwise, the indulgent, lacking restraint, the undisciplined uh, category. But it's important for us to understand that decisions are more complex than a simple binary of right and wrong. Some de decisions re reflect a simple preference. Others reflect indulgence, but not outright sin. 
And when my kids were young, we would consider the various options. We would work our way through this rubric in some situational ethic issues, right? This was dinner table fodder for my children growing up. As we tried to discern what's wise, maybe it was a decision that was on our plates as a family or uh, something they had raised. Today, to get ready for this passage, what I'd like for us to do is to work through a couple of options, right? You up for this? Let's start with eating healthy. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 is really clear. In fact, to make this, for this rubric to work, we have to have the foundation, the bedrock of knowing God's word. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, we're told our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Our body, we were bought with a price. Therefore, we're to honor God with our body. How do we handle this vessel in a way that honors God? So with regard to eating healthy, we could say that eating vegetables is wise. Eating dessert after a meal is permissible. Now comes in the question of what's beneficial. Moving from permissibility to unwise. Our donut supplier last week here at the church, right? We get, on average, 30 dozen donuts delivered every Sunday morning. Our donut supplier uh, texted Grant, Pastor Grant, and said, hey, the price is going up 57% effective immediately. Grant said, well, I'll get back to you. So we changed donut suppliers and came away with the same costs and five extra dozen donuts this morning. So we need to exercise. We need to understand what is permissible and what's unwise when it comes to... uh, the donut supply. I have a preference for chocolate donuts. Indulging that preference would be to eat dessert after every meal. Few of us eat dessert after every meal because we intuit that's unwise. Contrary to God's character and purpose for us, I think it's safe to say eating only dessert would be contrary to God's character. It wouldn't be a good use of the the temple that is our bodies. Let's do a, a little harder one, all right? Modesty. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to Pastor Timothy, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and the directive is to dress modestly, and then he uses the words with decency and propriety, adorned not with uh, flashiness and clothes that draw people's attention or jewelry or expensive apparel, but he says with good deeds. We're to adorn ourselves with good deeds. And then Matthew 5, 16. Why are we to adorn ourselves with good deeds and not really expensive and flashy clothing? Because we, our good deeds are to draw people's attention to our Heavenly Father, to whom they could turn their attention and, and praise Him. So wise, reflecting God's character and purposes, we need to identify what's decent and what is appropriate or with propriety. And we want to consider things like the climate we live in here in Chicagoland, the culture, the context. We can express individual preference. Certainly that's permissible. A sense of personal style, blue shirts over other colors perhaps, khakis. Then discipline's needed and restraint is needed between permissibility and, and unwise and will be mastered by nothing, right? Will not be indulgent. And so we don't want to wear clothes whose purpose primarily is to gain other people's attention and to exercise influence over them. We want people to be drawn to our good deeds, not our beauty, which is, right, only skin deep. 
contrary to God's purposes, is that our dress would be aimed at gaining power over others or control of others. And the truth is we can be immodest with our speech. We could lay out, you know, all our accomplishments before others. That's immodest speech. Looking to exercise control over others or power by the words of our mouth. Or it can be our dress. We could have immodest dress in the same way. Let's keep moving. Let's try entertainment. Philippians 4.8 is really clear what we should be giving our attention to. Whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think on these things. Think on these things. So when it comes to entertainment, we could say it's wise to watch what's noble, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable. It's permissible to watch World War II documentaries, but not everybody's into that. Are you following me here? There can be an expression of individual preference in what we watch for entertainment. Romantic comedies, World War II documentaries. But now we need restraint and discipline. And we need discernment as we move from permissible to unwise. Because we'll not be mastered by anything. And so we can indulge our individual preference by watching things that are grotesque, provocative, scintillating. Somebody came up to me after, war, after first service and asked me about Schindler's List, a documentary of um, the Nazi Holocaust. Where would that fall? I said, well, it's, it's in my estimation it's permissible, but it's also grotesque, right, at times. It's provocative at times. So we need to be careful about the, um, the diet of our minds. Sinful would be to, to watch or be entertained by things that are celebrating, endorsing, are glamorizing sin. A couple years ago, I was convicted personally by watching on television things that make me laugh. Things which I'd never want my children to participate in, I was laughing at. Now, admittedly, I chose some fairly simplistic examples just to give you a feel for how the rubric works. The truth is that categorizing decisions as wise or permissible, unwise, sinful, grows almost always more complex with the more info you have, the more data you have, which can make deliberations very difficult at times. But even more challenging than categorizing particular decisions within this rubric is relating to people, when, the people we love in particular, when we disagree on where decisions fall out in the rubric. And there's a lot of disagreement among Christians over which movies are indulgent and which are sinful. What clothing is an expression of personal style and what clothing is being worn as a means to gaining attention and perhaps even power over others. There's a lot of disagreement among sincere, sincere and devoted followers of Jesus. And there are at times a departure of ways based on these disagreements. That's, in fact, what we have in today's passage. We have two spiritually mature, sincere, devoted followers, leaders of the church, disagreeing with each other over what is wise in parting ways. The irony is we're in a sermon series titled Together for the Gospel. Let me read for us today's passage. It's verses 36 to 41. Acts chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Let's reroute ourselves. Let's go back to the first missionary journey and encourage those believers there. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, John Mark often referred to, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Paul and Barnabas, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company over this. They didn't minister together any longer. Barnabas took Mark, and it's thought that John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, and they sailed for Cyprus, a little island in the Mediterranean, which in fact they had visited on the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas had been there together. Cyprus was Barnabas' home. He's functionally going home with his cousin, John Mark. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of our Lord. The church sends them out. After a sharp disagreement, after a parting of ways, the church of Antioch gets on board and behind Paul and Silas and sends them out. Commending, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening all the churches. Again, the title of our series is Together for the Gospel, yet this morning we learned that Paul and Barnabas part ways after a sharp disagreement over, over whether to include John Mark. And for just a little bit of background, if, if you're newer to our series, years earlier, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark had been sent out by the same church, the church in Antioch, on the first recorded missionary journey. The story of this journey is recorded in Acts chapter 13. However, early in the journey, in a passing comment, Luke is the author of Acts, just a passing comment, Luke notes that early in that first journey, John Mark heads home. He quits. It's on the screen. It's Acts 13, 13. Just a passing comment. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. We don't think much of it. No biggie. This happens. We're never told why John Mark left. And of course, over the last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of speculation about why or what might have been the reason for him leaving, even what were his possible motives for leaving at this time. And we must admit that there's been lots of speculation for good reason, since just two chapters later, Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is arguing with Barnabas, and Paul describes John Mark's departure, his quitting, as desertion. Desertion. Like a soldier who abdicates his responsibility, John Mark left the mission, Paul says. And Paul explains to Barnabas that he feels, for this reason, it, it's unwise to include John Mark again on this second missionary journey. But what, does he, what might he exactly mean by unwise? Well, here's the rubric again, my best estimation. Let's begin with the wise category. In saying that it was unwise, Paul's saying that including John Mark did not reflect God's character or purposes for John Mark at this time. Wise is a reflection of God's character and purposes in a particular situation. Paul's obviously saying this would not re reflect God's character and purposes. For John Mark, at this time, in other words, Paul believes that God's got a different agenda for, for John Mark right now. 
And he's not saying that it will never be God's purpose for John Mark to go out on another missionary journey. He's basically saying, not now. Skip down to sinful. It's important to note that Paul was also not saying that Barnabas' desire, so it's Barnabas' desire to include John Mark. He's not saying Barnabas' desire is sinful, that is a departure or contrary from the character and purposes of God. In other words, he's not saying that in the Old Testament, the scripture they had at that time, it was expressly forbidden in scripture that John Mark go out on a second missionary journey. Right? That's what sin is. He's not saying that either. And I'm assuming that he wouldn't he wouldn't mind that Barnabas have the preference. It was Barnabas' preference to include John Mark. It's Paul's preference to exclude him. So somewhere between permissibility and unwise, Paul's saying that restraints needed, disciplines needed, and indulgence needs to be avoided. Clearly, Paul has on his mind the first time John Mark went out and the outcome which he describes as desertion. Clearly, Paul has on his mind that John Mark needs to grow. He's not ready for this. He can't handle it. This would be indulging, possibly indulging Barnabas' desires. Barnabas is an encourager. Paul may be commenting on You shouldn't indulge your desire, Barnabas, to include John Mark. You're you're over-functioning here, which is code for dysfunctioning. I had a counselor tell me once, you're over-functioning. What do you mean? You're dysfunctional. Oh, well, thank you. Paul could be commenting on Barnabas. Well, he is commenting on Barnabas' desire, but he's actually uh, ultimately commenting on John Mark's readiness. He's saying something, there's a restraint needed. There's some discipline. He's saying John needs to grow up. John needs to mature. And to an extent, he's saying Barnabas needs to do the same. Now, it's interesting to note and fairly important to note that it is apparently exactly what happens in John Mark's life. He grows. That's, I find it more than just interesting. I think it's really important to note that a what Paul felt John Mark needed, restraint and discipline and to avoid indulgence, a, a growing up, a, it's, a, it's a not never, but it's a not now. That's exactly what happens. He did mature, and Paul later changes his tune when it comes to John Mark, shifting from seeing him as a detriment out on the trail preaching the gospel to actually helpful. Those are Paul's description of John Mark. In Paul's last known letter, the second letter he wrote to Pastor Timothy that we have, 2 Timothy is the book, which Paul wrote from a Roman prison. He's awaiting his own execution, right? He's a dead man walking. He's on death row. He writes to Pastor Timothy, who was then leading the church in Ephesus, And he writes these words, they're on the screen. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful for me in ministry. So Paul's opinion of John Mark's readiness for mission changed over time. In fact, it was most likely that John Mark matured 
through the care, the mentoring of Barnabas, the encourager, which is exactly what we would expect God to do. That's what we're expecting God to do in my life. (laughs) Hopefully you're expecting God to mature me and to mature each other, our kids, our grandbabies. That's what happens in Mark's life. In fact, that is the good news. Despite sharp disagreements, despite going their separate ways, the church continued to grow, to grow up and to grow numerically. The gospel continued to go out. If you have your copy of Scripture, you can run your thumb down to Acts 16, verse 5. There we read of the success of the second missionary journey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily, right? Paul and Silas are sent out. Now, Barnabas and John Mark, they go off to Cyprus. Paul and Silas, they're commissioned. They go out on the second missionary journey. They visit the churches previously. Then they go a little beyond that. Luke's notes of the second missionary journey and the impact it had is they were strengthened in the faith and grew daily numerically. They, they grew larger in numbers. That's Acts 16.5. Men and women and children continued to be saved while John Mark had time and space needed to grow up himself. By God's grace, despite the disagreements between leadership, Jesus built his church. 21 centuries later, we can say the same. We can say the exact same. God is building his church By working in us, by working through us, and by working despite us. That's really good news. It's great news. It takes the unreasonable and the crushing burden off a pastor's neck when we are prone to thinking, this depends on me. No, it involves me. It involves you guys. It involves us together. We have gifts. We have a calling. We have vocation that we're to fulfill, that we're to exercise. We each have a role to play. But God's building his church. In fact, 21 centuries later, the fact that we're gathered in this room is evidence that Christ is raised. Because he's been at work despite us. He's been at work despite us, while also in us and through us, for us. We may disagree with one another on what is wise, permissible, unwise. I should should say we will disagree with each other on what is wise, permissible, unwise, and sinful. But we can be confident God is at work. This is one of the most beautiful realities of Scripture. The Bible is not a sanitized version of who we should be. The Bible, no, the Bible is an unvarnished look at who we really are. After service, I think Paul got it right. At the end of first service, I said, and and we can see here Paul got it right. And a man who arguably has forgotten more than I will ever know came up afterward and said, I think Barnabas probably got it right. 
And I said to him, well, you have your right to be wrong. Go and be, go and be blessed. No, he, he's forgotten more than I will ever know regarding Scripture. This is one of the most beautiful parts, I think, of Scripture. The Bible is not a sanitized version of who we should be with Christians all getting along all the time. It's an unvarnished look at how things really are as God builds his church despite his people. God didn't give up on John Mark. He didn't give up on Barnabas, Paul, their relationship. He kept working. And it's been my experience, like in the life of John Mark and Barnabas and Paul, it may take many, many years before we see how God has matured us and others. I had a Sunday away a couple years ago, um, more than a decade ago now. I was uh, not preaching here, and I was visiting another local church. And I walked into the foyer when a man on the other side of the foyer who had left our church with, and had a lot of consternation when he left uh, with me, spotted me from one side of the foyer and came across the foyer quickly at me. I thought, ugh, here we go. Um, so the story I'm telling is a decade old or more, and he had left a decade earlier or more at this time. And so I braced myself, trying to find my courage and my humility. They're hard to find at the same time. Good, you understand. Deep breath, and he came across, and he started with an apology. And it just, I just felt my body relax. I had been a youth pastor for his children, and this won't surprise, this may, <laughs> there was a joke I was going to try to tell. Anyway, I, I wasn't a great youth pastor. Certainly wasn't perfect. And he and I had gone round and round and round on issues. And he finally left over those issues. So I hope you hear in this story, I wasn't a perfect youth pastor. Wasn't even a really good youth pastor. But after, I'm going to say, a couple decades, we gave each other a hug and he helped Sherry and I find our seat that day in worship. It's been my experience, like in the life of John Mark and Paul and Barnabas, that many, many years may pass before we see how God has matured us and others. It may take decades for those who disagree and have parted ways to reunite. God's still at work. I'll give you another example, uh, one which Pastor uh, Vandervelde shared with me this week, and he's using in his sermon at the Poplar Creek campus this morning, uh, the name of the man I want to talk about is Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was born in 1832 to Christian parents who were full of faith, and from the day of his birth, they prayed that he'd be a missionary and carry the gospel all over the globe. They prayed specifically that he'd take the gospel to China. As a teenager, he also became obsessed with China, learning any and everything he could about the people of China and their culture. As a teenager, he began to teach himself Mandarin because he wanted to take the gospel to China. 20 years later, 1832 born, 1852, he set sail uh, from Liverpool, headed for China, a 20-year-old, full of wide-eyed wonder, ready to take on every challenge that God would put in front of him. His destination would be China. There he would do his best to build the church. 
when he landed in Shanghai, he quickly felt that he was to make a difference. The only way he would make a difference uh, with the gospel was to make real friendships with the Chinese people, which meant, in his estimation, removing any possible barrier between he and the Chinese people. So he changed the way he dressed. And he donned, instead of the classic white, European, Western-style suit, he started wearing the Chinese masculine robes. And he changed his diet. Instead of eating what Westerners were eating there in Shanghai, Western food, he started eating what the Chinese were eating. And then he shaved his head. Except for this one long ponytail, which was customary for Chinese men to wear. Hudson Taylor's expressed goal was to become as close to Chinese as humanly possible for a white European male to become. As a result of these changes, his fellow missionaries shunned him, mocked him, and questioned his faith. He was persecuted, not primarily by the Chinese, although that happened, but also by his fellow Christians. What Taylor believed was the Christ-like pursuit at all costs of the lost, others labeled not simply as unwise, but accommodating to sin. Consequently, he lived lonely, discouraged, rejected by, by, by both his European Christian brothers and sisters with whom he shared a common faith, and the Chinese folks that he was trying to share his faith with. But he persevered. He persevered through personal illness, the death of his wife, and several of his children. And for 50 years, he ministered there in China, establishing what became known as the China Inland Mission, now called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, Two of our missionary uh, staff from Guam Bible Church are with OMF, the Farbers and the Mallows, who in OMF uh, has had a decisive impact on the Far East, winning hundreds of thousands to faith in Christ. Hudson Taylor thought to have led as many as 35,000 people to Christ himself. So what are we to make of this? Hudson Taylor persecuted by, we celebrate him clearly, but he was persecuted by well-meaning Christians, ostracized. And in today's passage, we have two spiritually mature leaders in the early church disagreeing and then departing separate ways. What are we to do? Let me begin by saying I believe agreement's better than disagreement. I do not have a quesarasara attitude towards this. Uh, people leave our church over disagreements with our philosophy of ministry, our theology. It's not that I have a quesarasara attitude. God would rather we agree than disagree. But the reality is that disagreement is common. And for that reason, we need to be really careful, not simply with our convictions, what I would say are, is our position on any given theological or philosophical issue, but also our posture. Paul wrote this to the Philippians 
and it informs our posture. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Nothing. Rather, in humility, is that our posture? Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. You you could read it later today. He goes on to describe the fact that Christ bled and died for us. Have the same mindset as Christ with one another. I have a a, um, seminary professor who leads a church in Southern California. At that church, they have 20 different weekend worship services in one church. Uh, one of those churches, one of those services features uh, country western worship. Another of the 20 features grunge worship. Some per- prefer a particular style of preaching and would wish I'd move around a little bit more. Some believe that adult Sunday school is the best way to grow believers. Other churches put all their eggs in the small groups basket. Some like to celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly. Poplar Creek campus, they celebrate weekly the Lord's Supper. We celebrate it monthly here. I thank God that the unity provided by Christ is not so weak that these disagreements can disrupt our connection to God or one another. Amen? Unity is not uniformity. And I am not saying that all decisions are of equal merit. I still think Paul got it right. And the man who, after first service, is much brighter and wiser, and um, I'll leave it at that, sharper than me, he still disagrees with me. So I'm not saying all decisions are equal. I think some decisions have merit, while others are actually unwise. Some decisions are better than others. My point is that the bond that Paul and Barnabas shared of faith in Jesus was stronger than their disagreement and their subsequent parting of ways. And their posture towards one another was at least as equally important as their position. We're going to disagree over healthy eating habits. I disagree with my wife over healthy eating habits. Thankfully, the bond in Christ is stronger than her being wrong. (laughs) We're going to disagree on what is modest dress, appropriate entertainment, styles of music. When the organ was introduced in the church, I I'll ballpark this at 1600, thereabouts, during the Reformation, as the organ was introduced. Up to that time, all singing had been without instrumentation. The organ was described as the devil's instrument. We're going to disagree over styles of preaching, what to do with Sunday school, when to take the Lord's Supper, what exactly the Lord's Supper represents or entails. I think of the arguments, or no, let's see, arguments. Um, The appropriateness of tattoos. The discussion I have with my teenagers, right? None of them are teenagers anymore, so. How about this? Political candidates. Whether to publicly educate our children 
or privately educate our children. But God's word still stands. Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, give us the mind of Christ on matters, so many issues to debate, wrestle with. Clearly, some decisions are wise, some permissible, some unwise, and some sinful. Would you bring glory to your, would you continue to bring glory to yourself through your people, despite your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close uh, singing a song together. Would you stand?